as we get ready to go through John, uh, get ready with your Bibles, or you can, of course, use the TV screens. Chapter 14, we're going to start at verse 27. And since chapter 13, if you've been following this teaching I've been doing uh, through John's Gospel, since chapter 13, that was the close of Jesus' public ministry. And his focus from 13 on is his on the, it's his focus on the private ministry to his own disciples. So as you go through chapter 1 through chapter 13, Jesus is ministering or preaching to the nation of Israel, which pretty much rejected him. And now as you get to 13, he's ministering to his own disciples. And it's hours before his death, and he's in the upper room. Most of John, if, for those of you who don't know, most of John's starting from 13 on, is Jesus ministering to his disciples in the upper room. And it's hours before his death, and he demonstrates his love for them by washing their feet. In chapter 13 we saw that. He assured them of the hope of heaven, guaranteed them power for ministry, promised them provisions for their needs. In the last couple of times I spoke, he promised them the Holy Spirit. And he also promised them divine inspiration of God's word. And in tonight's text, he's promising them peace. Hours before his death, and Jesus is offering his peace to the heart of his troubled disciples. Now you would think, his disciples should actually be comforting him. Because he's been telling them about the horrific death he was about to experience. Constantly telling them, the Son of Man is going to be handed over to the chief priests and the Pharisees to be crucified. And on the third day, he's going to rise again. But instead, it was God, shrouded in humanity, comforting and promising them peace. Amazing. And the amazing thing is, Christ is still offering that same peace to all who belong to him. His peace. Yes. John 14, 27 to 31. I want to do something a little different. Would you mind standing in the reading of God's word? Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. Not as the world gives do I give it to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk with you much or talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. But I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. You may be seated. Father, as we listen and believe your word this day, give us your peace. In your Son's name we pray. Amen. 
Billy Graham tells this story. The sea was beating against the rocks in huge dashing waves. The lightning was flashing. The thunder was roaring. The wind was blowing. But the little bird was asleep in the crevice of the rock. It said serenely under its wings, sound asleep. That is peace, to be able to sleep in the storm. In Christ, we are relaxed and at peace in the midst of confusions, bewilderments, and perplexities of life. The storm rages, but our hearts are at rest. We have found peace at last. And I've seen that before. I'd be driving along the Belt Parkway in a storm, and I see seagulls or pigeons cuddled up on the lamppost when the storm is raging, and they look like they're at peace. It's amazing how God will take something like a bird and rebuke his children. Trust in me no matter what. Have peace in your hearts no matter what. In the midst of the storm, you can still have peace. Didn't he say the birds, the sparrows he takes care of? That's, a, that's in a way a rebuke to us because we worry. Another story, a minister says in the sermon, a Christian doctor carried out an interesting survey recently involving his patients. As they waited in the waiting room, they were asked to fill out a little survey on themselves. One of the questions asked was, what is your number one wish? On analyzing the answers, the doctor found that the number one wish of 67% of his patients was to have peace of mind. We all want peace. I mean, that's the bottom line. Every one of us want peace. There's no one in their right mind who doesn't want peace. No one. But we don't always have peace. The good news is, Christ's death secured our peace. Christ's death secured our peace. Four points we're going to look at in this text. First one is we have peace from Christ. Second one is we have joy from Christ. Third one, we have faith from Christ. And the fourth one is we have peace, joy, and faith from Christ's death. First one, we have peace from Christ. Verse 27 again. Jesus said, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Now it doesn't take a professional theologian to understand that if you have a troubled heart or a fearful heart, you lack peace. I mean, does it? You, you, you have a fearful heart, you have no peace. You have peace, you don't have a fearful heart. <clears throat> it has been said from historians that in the last 3,500 years, the world has seen less than 300 years of peace. It is also said that in the last 5,500 years, more than 8,000 peace treaties have been broken, and more than 14,000 wars fought with a combined total of about 4 billion, not million, 4 billion casualties. To say the least, the world is unsuccessful, unsuccessful in its efforts to possess peace. And because there's unrest in our world, there is fear in the hearts of men. People want peace in their personal lives, not just world peace. They want peace instead of heartache, of family problems, or just the daily pressures of life. I mean, the language 
we use gives us insight to what's going on in our hearts. For example, we say things like, I need peace and quiet. Or, make peace with your past. Or, when someone dies, rest in peace. But how does one find true, lasting peace? Some look for it in alcohol. Some look for it in drugs. Some look for it in recreation. Or maybe you look for it in the economic stability. These are at best temporarily reprieves from anxiety. At best. Only the Bible points us to the way of everlasting peace. Only the Bible can point that way. Jesus just promised his disciples the Holy Spirit. And now he's promising them peace. So let's look at what peace looks like in our text today. First, let's define peace. What does Jesus mean by peace? The Greek word for peace, according to the Greek-English dictionary of the New Testament, can mean peace. The Greek word can actually mean peace. It can mean order, opposite of disorder. It can mean harmony, often used in invocations and greetings. It can be used objectively, meaning, for example, we have peace with God. We no longer are enemies with God because of Christ's death. That's objective peace. Or it can be used subjectively. The tranquil state of a soul. For example, when Peter was in prison, he slept. Or Paul and Silas in prison. They sang praises to God because they had peace in their hearts. They had contentment. Of course, the peace in their hearts flowed from a right relationship with God. That's the objective peace. Or it can be used as a future reference to the Messianic kingdom. When there will be no more strife between people, nations, God and men. I can't wait for that day. I cannot wait. It it can also be used as one of the most important theological terms found in the Old Testament. Which is a greeting word or a farewell term. Shalom. Let me start with objective peace. Without objective peace... We cannot have subjective peace. True lasting peace always starts with objective peace. Peace with God. Adam and Eve, before the fall, had both objective peace and subjective peace. They enjoyed perfect fellowship with God. There was not a trace of fear, not a trace of anxiety or unrest in their hearts. That is, until they sinned by disobeying God's command not to eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And when sin entered their hearts, so did a broken relationship between them and their God. They no longer had peace with God. They were now at enmity with God. They were enemies of God. They were haters of God. They had no peace with God. There was constant tension with God. They had an unhealthy Fear of God. There's a healthy fear, excuse me, a healthy fear of God and an unhealthy fear of God. And as a result, they had fear in their hearts. Listen to Genesis 3, verses 8 through 10. After Adam and Eve sinned. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God. Among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? As if God didn't know where he was. And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. 
You see, they hid themselves. They no longer had objective peace with God. And they were afraid. They no longer had subjective peace from God. They had inner turmoil. Because of our first parents' sin, Adam and Eve, all humanity was severed from having peace with God. No one is born in right standing with God. No one is born having objective peace with Almighty God. No one. By heritage and personal choice, we oppose God. Romans 5.12 tells us, by heritage, we oppose God. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. Then we come to Romans 3, verses 10 through 18, and it tells us, by personal choice, we oppose God. As it is written, no one is righteous, no not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless, no one does good, not even one, their throat is, a, their throat is an open grave, and they use their tongues to deceive, the venom of asp is under their lips, their mouth is full of curses and bitterness, their swift Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. You see, we're all born in sin and need to be reconciled with God. And this can only happen through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. When a person puts their trust in Christ, they are reconciled with God and therefore have that objective peace with God. A sinner can only be justified by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul told the church in Rome, in chapter 5, verse 1, he says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the first step in having true, genuine, lasting peace. Be reconciled to God through faith in His Son. Then, and only then, can we have subjective peace, which is implanted to our hearts by the promised Holy Spirit. It's promised, the Holy, it's a, the promised Holy Spirit that gives us peace in our hearts when we place our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Dr. Kenneth Gangel said, only those, and listen to this, this is insightful, It said, only those who have peace with God can have the peace of God. The best counsel I can give for those of you who don't know Jesus as Lord and Savior is go to the cross. Turn to Christ for forgiveness. Be reconciled with God because you know you are at war with Him. And as one commentator said, it's a war you cannot win. And then you will be right, in right standing with God. You will have peace with God. Also, you can now experience peace from God. When you experience peace with God, you'll experience peace from God. And as a believer, I know what it's like to sin and feel separation in my fellowship with God. I know that. But I'll never be at war with Him again because I have been reconciled with God the Father through Christ. When children disobey, they are disciplined. And until they realize they they were disobedient, there's this tension between the child and the parent. And even though there's a wedge in their relationship, that child will always be their child. As a genuine believer, we will never, if you're a genuine believer, you will never lose the objective peace. The war is over. We will always be a son and daughter 
of God. We have peace with God. And when we have peace with God, we can experience the peace of God. We can have tranquility of heart, the peace that passes all understanding. Amen. The only thing in a believer, you can't, nothing could ever break the, the subject of peace. The only thing that could break, can break the subject of peace is sin, of course. Could still be have peace with God. We're not at war with Him anymore. We never lose our salvation. However, you could lose that peace in your heart. And most of us know what that feels like. Philippians 4, 6 and 7. And by the way, that's a peace that passes all understanding. Amen. Sometimes I have peace and I don't understand how I have it. I mean, I don't understand where it comes from. Now, I mean, of course, now I know it comes from God, but it, it, it just boggles my mind. Paul said to the Philippian church, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Trusting Christ protects believers from anxiety, from doubt, from fear, from panic, distress, and anything that would cause us to trouble, to have troubled minds and hearts. The only thing that can break tranquility of heart, once again, is the Christian, in the Christian is sin. But when our hearts are fixed on Christ, we enjoy lasting peace. Dr. Kent Hughes, I love his writings, he said this, To the unregenerate mind, the mysteries of God, purpose in life remains barred. But to the believer, the indwelling spirit gives comprehension and comfort. He brings before our troubled hearts the word of God and applies its comfort. Words cannot adequately convey the comfort of the Holy Spirit. But I have seen it as I have stood in a hospital room with those whose lives are literally falling apart and have witnessed the Holy Spirit bringing to their remembrance the promises of the Word. And I, myself, have seen peace in a believer's life when hardships were surrounding them. I, myself, have experienced that. Christ's peace is by no means, don't get the wrong idea here, the absence of hardships, trials, persecution, and tribulation. No, but in the midst of it, we can experience peace. Amen. Turn with me to Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41. <clears throat> On that day when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in a boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Can we put that picture up? By the way, that's me and Brian. I'm over there looking like this and Brian's like this, you know. But the point is, 
Who looks more peaceful, me or Brian? <laughs> Pastor Brian, excuse me. Jesus. <laughs> well said. The point is this. In the boat, Jesus, the Prince of Peace, had peace. He didn't worry about these things. He didn't worry about the storm and the tempest. The disciples were. And Jesus is saying, I want to give you my peace. I don't want to create peace in you. I want to give you my peace. This is the peace that Jesus possesses that enabled him to sleep in a vicious storm that arose on the sea they were crossing. That's the peace. And this is the same peace that Christ gives you and me when the storms of life arise in our hearts. Why? Because as the Bible says, he is the God of peace and he wants us to have his peace. Amen. Amen. As, just as Jesus slept in the boat during the storm, Jesus wants our heart at rest. Maybe some of you are thinking, well, he's God. Of course he has peace. Yes, but he was also very human. He was truly God and truly man. He was also very human and tempted in every way you and I are. But even if you insist on, well, he's God, listen to this, Acts 12, verses 1 to 7. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending that after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and two sentries before them, before the door, were, guard, were guarding the prison And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and walked him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. Now, Peter wasn't God. And it was human. And as human and as sinful as you and me. But he was peaceful. Do you know why? Or do you want to know how peaceful Peter was? Nothing disturbed his rest. Nothing The guards didn't disturb his rest. The dirty, hard, smelly, stinking, rat-infested, urine-infested prison cell didn't disturb his rest. Neither did the threat of execution disturb his rest. As a matter of fact, do you want to know how peaceful and sound asleep he was? The angel had to wake him. Was this the St. Peter who cowardly denied Jesus three times? Yeah. But now Peter was filled with the presence of the Holy Spirit. He had the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, and so on. That was occupying his heart. Listen, we can all learn from Peter in a tranquilized pill society to have peace in any circumstance. I remember when I was a youth leader, one of our youth was out in the country. I, I, I belonged to a fairly large church at that point. And our youth group is very large. I was one of the youth leaders. We had like 80 kids in the youth group. And one of, um, 
one of our youth was with two friends and was walking on the rocks in a brook in the country and he slipped and he fell and hit his head and died. And it was a devastating time for the church to have one of its young members die. I remember this kid was a great kid. Wonderful boy. And when I went to the wake, I remember, to my amazement, the mother and father greeting everyone with such tranquility and peace. Now I know they were heartbroken, and I know the mother had times, of, I'm sure, of breaking down and weeping uncontrollably. But they knew where their son was, and they had peace in their hearts, the peace of God. And you could see it. And I remember that as a young believer. How, how could they be so peaceful? But they were. Jesus was leaving his disciples his peace and giving them his peace because he was the source of their peace. And Christ's peace was and is very different from the world. The world's pseudo-peace, at best, is circumstantial peace. <clears throat> their false sense of peace is based on circumstances. If the stock market is up and I have financial security, I have peace. If I have my health, I have peace. If my marriage and kids are doing well, I have peace. But if I'm broke or I'm sick or my family is falling apart, I don't have peace. I have anxiety, fear, panic and confusion. That's the world. <clears throat> I've also been to wakes of unbelievers where there was no peace, but uncontrollable weeping, where there was no comforting the person who lost a loved one. Yes, we mourn for a loved one. Yes, we feel the sting of financial or health loss, but we don't despair, we don't lose hope, and in the midst of pain, Christ's peace dominates. <clears throat> Not so for the world. Isaiah tells us in chapter 57, 20 and 21, but the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet. And its waters toss up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. The Apostle Paul, in his letter to the Romans, when he was speaking of unbelievers, said in chapter 3, verse 17, And the way of peace they have not known. Dr. John MacArthur, in his commentary on John, said this, The world only offers an experience of momentary fleeting tranquility through self-indulgence, materialism, love, romance, substance abuse, false religion, <clears throat> psychotherapy, or a host of other placebos. But the world's pseudo-peace is in reality the bliss of ignorance. If unbelievers understood the wrath of God and the agonizing, unrelieved, eternal torment awaiting them in hell, they would never enjoy a moment of peace in this life. And listen, and as Christians, we have to agree with Dr. MacArthur because the Bible repeatedly emphasizes that the world's peace is inadequate and the end for an unbeliever is hell. And if they understood that, they wouldn't have a moment of peace. The world's problem for lacking true, lasting peace is purely theological. They don't know the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ. So believers have two great promises from Christ in chapter 14 alone. He promised them the Holy Spirit and Christ's peace would be in our hearts by way of the Holy Spirit. But he also gives his disciples a command. He says, let not 
your heart be troubled. Neither let it be afraid. Which is also repeated in verse 1 of 14. Christ's peace dispels troubled hearts. Why? Because Christ's peace and troubled hearts cannot coexist. Just like light and darkness cannot coexist. Just like the spirit of God and demons cannot coexist in a person's life. Why did the Lord constantly tell his own, don't let your hearts be troubled and don't be afraid. Do not fear. I mean, you see that throughout the Bible. You see that throughout Jesus' teachings, through the apostles' teachings. And I think we have to constantly be reminded because the human heart is prone to troubled and fearful hearts. We're prone to that. You know when we sing that song, Prone to Wander? We, we are prone to troubled and fearful hearts. And it takes the presence of the Holy Spirit to dispel the agitation and fear in our hearts. It takes the Holy Spirit to give us trust and confidence in our God and Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our peace. The presence of the Holy Spirit reveals Christ's peace in our hearts and excludes fear, cowardice, and anxiety. By the, uh, by the way, the two verbs, troubled and afraid, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid, are verbs in the Greek in the present tense, which carries the idea of continuous. In other words, as Dr. Kenneth Weiss, the Greek scholar says, he, he translates it like this, let not your hearts continue to be agitated, neither let it, be, neither let it continue to be fearful. Amen. Jesus, really wants to put an end to our troubled and fearful hearts and let his peace replace it. What do you and I want? Do we want fearful, troubled hearts or peace ruling in our hearts? I mean, that's a rhetorical question. We know the answer to that. Well, only God can bring that peace in our hearts. If we look for peace in any other way, we look in vain. But as believers, if I'm speaking to you as a believer... We do experience peace, don't we? Amen. The peace of Christ makes no sense to the world. That's why Paul told the Philippians, the peace of God which surpasses all understanding. It doesn't make sense to the world. Dr. John Piper said, the ultimate reason that it surpasses all understanding is that it is not human peace. It is God's peace. The peace between Jesus and his Father. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give it to you. It's my peace. I am not creating peace. I am sharing with you my peace. I am bringing you into my peace. Jesus Christ wants you and all his followers to have his peace. So point one, we have peace with Christ. Point two, we have joy from Christ. And the next three points will go a little bit quicker. Verse 28. You have heard me say I am going away, and I will come to you. If you love me, you would have rejoiced, because I am going to the Father. For the Father is greater than I. Basically, what the text is saying here, or it seems to imply, that the disciples did not love Jesus. At least that agape love, selfless love. They may have had the phileo love, the love of a brother, an affectionate love for Christ, but they didn't have that that selfless love for Christ. Because if they did, they wouldn't be troubled at his departure. But would have rejoiced because Jesus had joy 
in going back to the glory he had before he came to this earth with his father. They should have rejoiced in Christ's joy. Also, he was going back to the father, which ensured that he would come back and take them to be with him forever. That alone should have caused them to rejoice. Also, Jesus said they should rejoice because he is going back to the Father. For the Father is greater than him. Now, I I have to spend a few minutes on this because, you know, cults take this passage of scripture, pull it out of context, and strip Christ of his divinity. Iranians in the 4th century, there were 4th century heretics, Arius, uh, who denied the divinity of Christ, and Jehovah Witnesses. There's more, of course, but these two. They deny Christ's divinity and they use this as a proof text that Jesus is a lesser God. They believe that Jesus was created. And without getting into the whole doctrine of the deity of Christ, which would take much too much time, we we know from the whole biblical revelation that Jesus is not saying he was not equal to God. He wasn't saying that. Jesus emphatically and consistently claimed equality with his father repeatedly. For one example, in John 10.33, when the Jews picked up stones to stone Jesus for blasphemy, and Jesus asked them, for what work were they stoning him for? And they responded, it is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself to be God. Now, when Jesus said that, He didn't deny it. If they said that to him and he wasn't God, he would have said, no, no, no. You misunderstood me. I don't claim to be God. But he kept silent. And there are many other passages that confirm Christ's divinity. What is meant here is not essence of being, but in role. The son voluntarily submits to the father. In that sense, he's saying, I'm The Father is greater than me. The Son loves the Father and took on humanity at the Father's command. Warren Wisby, I think, think clarifies this well. He said, when Jesus was here on earth, he was necessarily limited by having a human body. He voluntarily laid aside the independent exercise of his divine attributes and submitted himself to the Father. In that sense, the Father was greater than the Son. Of course, when the Son returned to heaven, all he had laid aside was restored once again. So that, I think that was perfect when he said that. Jesus was, is, and always will be God. He never ceased to be God. Never. Amen. He may have laid aside his divine attributes temporarily. And at times he even used them. But he never, never denied his divinity. Never ceased. How could God cease to be God? But there's another way to look at it as Dr. D.A. Carson appropriately states. Jesus is returning to the sphere to the sphere where he belongs, to the glory he had with the Father before the world began, to the place where the Father is undiminished in glory, unquestionably greater than the Son in his incarnate state. So Jesus' disciples really should have rejoiced in his departure, but instead were in turmoil. Jesus is about to be tortured to death and is deeply concerned for his disciples, for their peace, for their joy and their faith. What would we do if we knew we were going to be tortured and killed? Would we be concerned for others? 
And John Piper says this again. I have to quote him because they, they say it much better than I could say it. My guess is what we would be desperate to find our own peace, our own joy, and our own faith. We would probably not be pouring out our concern for the peace and joy and faith of our family and friends. And I have to agree with him. But the selfless love of Christ was not concerned for himself, but others. Listen, understand this, that these things were written 2,000 years ago to the hearers of John's gospel. They were written to them, but they were written for us. And Jesus wants his followers from every generation to have his peace. Every generation to have his joy, his faith, even in the midst of the deepest trial. But the disciples failed to understand Jesus. They failed to trust him. And they failed to love him. And the result was a lack of joy. Not only did they have a lack of peace, they had a lack of joy. Can you really have peace when you lack joy? I don't think so. Only genuine love for Christ brings joy in spite of circumstances. And Jesus is getting ready to be handed over to the chief priest. And the Pharisees where he will be condemned and crucified. And yet had joy. The joy that was set before him. And as I said before. Peter, Paul, Silas was in prison. And maintained peace and also joy. And Stephen was being stoned to death. As he was being stoned to death. He had this peace and joy. Because he looked up to heaven and prayed for his accusers forgiveness. Also, the rest of his apostles had peace, joy, in spite of their dire circumstances. Now, this is post-Pentecost. The disciples had no peace. And when they got filled with the Holy Spirit and and they saw Jesus' promises fulfilled, guess what? They had peace. Turn to Acts chapter 5, verses 40 to 41. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for his name. Listen, this is... May I be frank and honest here? Are we safe here? This is normal Christianity. This is normal Christianity. And I think the apostles wouldn't recognize most of the Christianity in America today. I'm not saying all of it. Every little discomfort we go through, we lose our peace and the joy, don't we? I, 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 I won't speak for you, I'll speak for myself. Sometimes every little discomfort, I could lose joy and peace. Walter Leo Buscaglia tells a story about his mother and their misery dinner. <clears throat> it was the night after his father came home and said it looked like as if he would have to go into bankruptcy because his partner had departed with the firm's funds. His mother went out and sold some jewelry to buy food for a sumptuous feast. Other members of the family scolded her for it, but she told them the time for joy is now, when we need it the most, not next week. Her courageous act rallied the family. We don't 
have to wait for heaven to experience peace and joy. We could experience now this peace and this joy. Now is the time to have Christ, peace and joy. Are you going through a trial? Because of your faith in Jesus Christ? And do you still have joy? That's because like the apostles you rejoice that you are counted worthy to suffer for Christ. As 21st century Christians, we need to count it all joy. Whatever circumstances we're in, the apostles did after Pentecost. Not before Pentecost, but after Pentecost. Another thing I think that is important is to rejoice whatever Jesus rejoices in. Even if you're in the hardships, in the midst of hardships. Whatever he rejoices in, you rejoice in. Paul told the Roman church, rejoice with those who rejoice. So it's possible... As Christians, to have peace, to have joy. And point three, our faith is from Christ. Verse 29. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. So even though his disciples already believed in him, they still struggled with that doubt. They, they did. Jesus said, what he said was not to shame them, but to encourage their faith, to build up their faith. They would understand when Jesus was raised back to life that he was truly the omniscient God, the truly the, the God who knows all things, and their faith would be established and grow. Dr. Leon Morris, the Australian theologian, says Jesus' words will have a greater effect in the future when the things of which he speaks actually come to pass. The disciples will recall the words and believe. You see, we see Jesus encouraging their faith regarding Judas's betrayal. In earlier, when I preached in chapter 13, uh, verse 19, he says, I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. The disciples understood the Old Testament, that it taught that God is the only one that can predict the future. So when Jesus died and was raised back to life, they remembered what he said. Not Nostradamus, he's not the one who predicts the future. Christ predicts the future and is accurate. You don't have to get to the horoscopes. You go to the Bible, and that'll tell you the future, and that'll tell you what's going to happen in this world. In John chapter 2, when the Jews were demanding a sign from Jesus to prove his authority for his actions, he told them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And then as you skip down to verse 22, John tells us, when therefore he was raised from the dead, listen to this, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. You know what? Faith is really not blind faith. It's not necessarily blind faith. Jesus appeared to his own after rising from the dead. And they believed. They believed what they saw. Now I'm not saying we have to see something to believe it. I'm just saying God gives us evidence. You know, when you're sharing Christ with someone, it's not blind faith. We see, they can see the evidence of people's lives changed all around them. It took the resurrection for them to understand Jesus' prophecy about himself. Nor does showing someone a miracle convince someone of Christ. The Jews saw many, many miracles that Jesus performed, including the raising of dead. And they still did not believe. And as a matter of fact, they crucified him. 
they saw him raise Lazarus from the dead. And after they, he raised Lazarus from the dead, he wanted to kill, they wanted to kill, not only Jesus, but also Lazarus. The one he just raised from the dead. How moronic is that? You see him raise a man from the dead, and now you want to kill the man he raised from the dead? <clears throat> actually, seeing the miracles and listening to Christ's words actually hardened their hearts because of their unbelief. When I was a new believer, <clears throat> I desperately, desperately wanted to see a miracle. I went to every service there was with so-called faith healers. I actually never saw anything spectacular. I never did. But I really didn't need anything like that because I had more than the original disciples had before Pentecost, of course. I had the completed word of God, which they did not have. After, and I had the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which they did not have before Pentecost. Jesus wants us to have his peace, his joy. He also wants us to have his faith. And I say his faith because I believe the scripture teaches us that it all comes from God. Yes, even faith is from God. Amen. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, I think clarifies this. Makes it clear. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. So wait, wait, what's... Not our own doing. Grace through faith. Grace is a gift from God, and so is your faith. If you think you just turned around and said, Oh, Jesus, I think I'll believe in you today. That's not the way it happened. That is not the way it happened. God gave you a new heart. God changed you from the inside. And then you responded with faith and trust. And our fourth and final point is we have peace, joy, and faith. It's all from Christ. It's because of Christ's death. Verse 30 and 31. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. So Jesus was telling his disciples, the time of his departure was very soon, hours away. He knew Satan was coming to get him through Judas, the Jewish leaders and the Roman soldiers. And we also see Satan, especially active in the crucifixion. Uh, but Jesus also knew very important, very important, that Satan, the ruler of this world, had no claim on him. The devil has illegal but divinely permitted rulership in the evil's world system. However, in verse 30, Jesus says he has no claim on him. Now we know Satan has tried to kill Jesus from the moment he was born up until his present time, but to no avail. Why? Because God's time for Jesus to be crucified was not yet. But now it's time. And Satan would succeed in murdering Jesus, but to Satan's own destruction. See, Jesus wasn't the victim. Jesus could say, he has no claim on me. I'm not the victim. This is the very reason he came. 1 John 3, 
verse 8, second half, he says, The reason the Son of Man appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Then we have in John 12, 31, Jesus said, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. The devil had no claim on Jesus. What does it mean to have no claim on him? It's a, this is a normal Hebrew legal expression. It, it doesn't mean he has no power over me, although the devil had no power over Jesus. But he has no legal claim or hold on me. In other words, he does not have anything on me at all. Why? Because of Christ's sinlessness. Because he was sinless. How does Satan have a claim on anyone? Sin. Satan has a hold on everyone except Jesus. And all who have been born again. Everyone in Christ. Satan has no claim on you. First John chapter 5 verses 18 and 19. John says, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who was born of God protects him. And the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Because Satan has no hold on Christ, Christ's death was accepted by his father as a propitiation for our sins. And because of Christ's death, not only are sins forgiven, but we have peace with God, peace from God, joy and faith to believe all this. That he actually gives us faith to believe this. Satan has no hold on you. Sometimes, and in my earlier days, you know, just when you don't understand sound doctrine, you know, you go off a little here and you go off a little there. I mean, you know, too many Christians are afraid of Satan. He has no hold on, a, on the Christian. He can't do anything to you. He might be able to tempt you, but he cannot kill you or do anything to you. The only thing he could do is what God the Father gives permission for him to do. And if he gives him permission to do something to our lives, it's only going to benefit us. Praise God. Praise God. Amen. That's why Paul could say, I preach Christ and him crucified. Without Christ's death, there would be no lasting peace, no lasting joy or faith. Christ secured it for us. In 1 Timothy 1.15 tells us Christ came into the world to save sinners. His death proves to the world that Satan had no hold on him, but that Jesus Christ loved his father so much that he obeyed him perfectly to the point of death. Also, you can't help but see as you read the historical accounts of Christ's life that he willingly laid down his life. It wasn't Satan's will. His father's will. Aren't you glad that Jesus was not a disobedient son? Because of his obedience, you and I have objective peace. And we have joy. And we even have faith. To believe all this. 700 years before Christ walked the earth. The prophet Isaiah spoke of this. Isaiah 53.5. He said. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was what? The chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. Did Jesus' death just forgive our sins? Did his death just forgive our sins? No. He gave us his righteousness on top of it. And we have direct 
access now to his peace, his joy, and his faith. Peace, joy, and faith secured for us because of Christ's death. And I don't know about you, I'll speak for myself, but I'm sure I could speak for many of you. I am eternally grateful for his death. After Jesus, after he finished teaching in the upper room, he told his disciples, rise, let us go from here. He's now going to start his journey to Jerusalem. After he left the upper room, Jesus would continue to teach them. He was going to continue to teach them. But his journey was now towards Jerusalem, where he was going to be crucified and secure our peace, our joy, and our faith. The next time I will speak about Jesus in chapter 15, giving his disciples a wonderful analogy of the relationship between Christ, the vine, and the believer, the branches. Let me conclude with this. So, don't think of your neighbor, but think of yourself. Do you have peace? Do you have joy? Is your faith real? If your answer is no, that's okay if you're honest and your answer is no, then you need to go to God, repent and believe in His Son, Jesus Christ. That is the only possible way Not only to have peace with God, but the peace of God ruling in your heart. It's the only way. It's the only way to have lasting joy. It's the only way to know your faith is real. It's genuine. This is something you cannot produce because it's not human. It's Christ's peace. You need to get it from Christ. It's Christ's joy. Even faith comes from Him. So don't delay Go to him today because today is the day of salvation. Now I want to speak to Christians, to those of you who are Christians. Why does our peace and our joy, and I speak to myself too, why does it get interrupted so many times? Why does our faith seem to waver at times? And I have one answer, which may sound simplistic, but I think it's the only answer. We drifted away from God. Amen. Or we have our eye on the problems of life rather than on Jesus. The solution? Simple. Go back. Let your first love be restored. Keep your heart and mind fixed on Christ. If we have normal growth as Christians, guess what? Our joy, our peace, our faith will be interrupted less and less as we grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. Do you mind praying with me? Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that you sent him to the cross to die and rise again to secure our peace, our joy, and to give us faith. Help us to have no interruptions in our spiritual well-being as we draw closer and closer by your spirit to you and your son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.